Warhammer fantasy news, hobby, lore, and more. Welcome to the War Games Orchard with Nathan and GJ. Empty your money pouches. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, it's GJ, and today we are going to take a look at the Man-Eaters of the Ogre Kingdom books, which is totally, definitely, most certainly inspired by what I have been up to these past few days. I've been working on some Man-Eater models, so let's talk about that and get right into news and hobby. I don't really need a hobby. A hobby is supposed to pass the time, not fill it. I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. We have got some news for you today, as well as a little bit of hobby. For the news, I would like to say thank you for everybody who responded to the Bretonian episode I did. I got some feedback from um, Jeroen, who lives uh, here in the Netherlands. He pointed me to a Dutch podcast about uh, the Middle Middle Ages, uh, things like jousting and such. I, uh, when I mentioned the Knight of the Perilous Lance, that he wasn't unhorsed. So then I wondered how anyone could win the tournament if he couldn't be unhorsed. Would that not automatically make him the winner? And Jeroen was kind enough to point out that you scored points by breaking lances. And um, you don't have to get the opponent out of the saddle to win a joust. So uh, thank you, Jeroen, for educating me there. I also got another message this time from Jim Bob, who pointed me in the direction of a BBC podcast that was also discussing uh, King Arthur and some of the tales like the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I haven't had the time yet to listen to any of those, but I will definitely go check them out. So, uh, thanks guys for your feedback. It's always nice to know that I'm not talking to myself. Although, probably even if I were talking to myself, I'd still record these episodes, because otherwise I would have to talk about Warhammer to my wife, and I would like her to remain my wife. In other news, we have the painting challenge for October and for September. The September challenge has just closed. We have three entries. I just put them up on Facebook for voting. We have Nick Jacob with his excellent conversion of Kurt Helborg on a Griffon. We have Jake Rustjack, and I hope I pronounced your last name right there. Uh, with the Bash Brothers, because if you want to have the A-Team, the best of the best are, of course, the Black Orcs. I mean, Grimgor says it himself. And he has some lovely 5th edition Black Orcs uh, painted up, and I think to a very high standard. Awesome models, awesome paint job. And uh, we have, of course, my own entry, the Z-Team. My uh, zombie pirate parody of the original 1980s A-Team. We also have another paint challenge up for October. The uh, October, of course, the Halloween month, so this month's theme is going to be Trick or Treat. 
Although it can be a little bit scary sometimes, with all the ghosties and the ghoulies, and to mention the goblins that stalk the Warhammer world, Geheimnisnacht, or for those of you from other places, Halloween, can also be a very fun time. Witches go trick-or-treating dressed up as commoners, mutant pumpkins from the Chaos Waste use people's hats as lanterns, you know, the usual. So, if you want to participate, uh, very simple, you have to just paint one single model with a Halloween theme. Let's see your best Halloween horrors, geheimnisnacht ghouls, or trick-or-treating terrors. I am curious to see what people will come up with. Uh, I always love to see everybody's creativity in these challenges. Uh, I think it's one of the one of the fun parts to do to do these, and it's a very low threshold. You only have to paint a single model. Speaking of painting miniatures, I have been busy mostly with not painting miniatures. I have, uh, as you will probably know, I've also been busy organizing the Call of the Crown 2, uh, the Crown of Command podcast's own painting challenge. And uh, that has been keeping me busy just to collect all the entries and to uh, put them all on uh, on the blog that I uh, dedicated to it. Uh, I got a lot of response. We have over 80 entries there. And one of the things that I did, I am, I've been uh, prepping some beastmen. I'm going to do some test models, and then I should really get painting because I have a unit, uh, a beast herd planned for this month with, uh, I believe, twelve gores and eight ungors, or maybe the other way around. No, I think it's twelve gores and eight ungors, and uh, also a shaman and a. Um, What's it called? A, a, a Wargore, a hero level character. Or maybe a Beast Lord. You can probably use them interchangeably. So I have those um, undercoated. I am going to go heavy on the contrast paints for those. And then I was going through all the entries for the Call of the Crown Edition 2. And I saw that there were no Ogre Kingdoms entries. And I felt a little bit sorry for the Ogres because they are such nice guys and they, they sing such great songs. So I then decided to make a 1000 point list of Ogre Kingdom miniatures. Now with Ogres you don't need much to get to 1000 points. I could just do two special characters from the 6th edition book and then I'd be done with it. But I have instead decided to do only one of those, only uh, Grease's Goldtooth, who puts me at 565 points right off the bat. And I added uh, some man-eaters for the rest. Uh, there are six different sculpts of man-eaters, uh, at least the, the six edition sculpts. They added two more, which were special characters in 8th edition. So those man-eaters I am now assembling, they're all fine cast, I, I don't like fine cast, it takes too long to assemble to cut off all the all the little tabs and everything that they put underneath everything. Um, but well, I'll, I'll take what I can get and I'm just happy that these models are still in existence and that I could buy them for a reasonable price instead of having to pay scalper prices on eBay. So, because I have been making these man-eater models, 
I decided I would like to do an episode, a deep dive into the man-eaters. Which is exactly what we are going to do. We're going to take a look at the man-eaters for the Ogre Kingdoms in 6th edition and in 8th edition. And because there are only so few editions to go through, I thought it would also be nice to take a look at the special character that bears the name Man-Eater, who is a Golkvag Man-Eater, and I discovered he has already been around since Warhammer 1st edition. So we're going to take a look at his iterations through 1st and 2nd edition, and then 5th edition, and he appeared in the White Dwarf, uh, Regiments of Renown list in 6th edition and then he got a another update in 8th edition where he was finally included into the Ogre Kingdoms book. Now let's talk about the Man-Eaters. Uh, the Man-Eaters are a unit of Ogres that you can pick and they go all over the world. They are, well all Ogres are mercenaries but these are like the ultimate mercenaries. I'm going to read out a bit of fluff from the 8th edition book. It contains about the same as what's in the 6th edition book, but uh, it's a little bit more extensive. Ogre man-eaters are veterans of many campaigns fought in far-off lands. Traveling mercenaries beyond Pier, they have spent decades accruing scars, tall tales, wealth, exotic war gear and new skills before heading back to the Ogre Kingdoms. Man-eaters have fought throughout the old world and beyond, and many races attempt to recruit such fighters into their armies, promising food, gold, or whatever else the ogres want in return for their services. It is the pay that matters, not the foe. Although with some contracts, man-eaters are rewarded fallen enemies to eat, so in most cases the enemy may matter. Ogres will eat anything, but they have preferences. Man-eaters inherit the cultures of the lands they visit rather than spread their own. These mercenaries learn the fighting skills and adopt the style of dress appropriate to the lands in which they fight. For example, a man-eater in the empire might wear breeches and an ostentatious feather with a brace of, brace of huge pistols across his chest. A man-eater campaigning in the jungles of the Southlands might go to battle as the savage orcs do. That is, wearing an undersized loincloth, a gut plate and nothing else but smeary war paint, although more civilized folk might not want to visual that. And I do consider myself to be amongst the more civilized folk, especially when it comes to uh, too short uh, a loincloth on an ogre. Man-eaters tend to operate in small groups, some of which have fought together for years. Despite their outlandish appearance, these tight-knit bands excel at breaking heads. At the Battle of Kofler's Gap, a small unit of man-eaters held out against invading barbarians for an entire week, allowing the Empire to muster an army and counterattack. When the Empire forces finally battled their way through to the Ogres, they found them surrounded by huge piles of the dead with the body of the northern chieftain merrily roasting over a cooking fire. All they would say about the siege was that the marauders were good eating and wanted to know where they could find some more. It's rare for any two man-eaters to fight or be equipped in exactly the same manner, and opponents find themselves fighting against a dizzying array of different weapons and combat techniques. 
The only real factors uniting the individualistic man-eaters are their monumentally inflated sense of self-worth and their capacity to smash aside lesser creatures without breaking a sweat. When they return to the Ogre Kingdoms, man-eaters take any opportunity to bore their tribe mates with their long fanciful war stories, some of which are even true. Although such tales are tiresome, an ogre tyrant is always happy if he can call on the services of one or two units of man-eaters to aid his tribe. They will be used to lead important attacks or hold a vital part of the battle line. Man-eaters are famously stubborn opponents and usually prefer to fight to their last breath rather than flee. After all, they have learned the hard way that if they run off in the course of a battle, they won't get paid. That, I think, tells you just about all you need to know about the man-eaters. They go everywhere, they fight for everyone as long as you pay them. Man-eaters in 6th edition, uh, 6th edition is the first iteration where we see the Ogre Kingdoms as an actual army and also the man-eaters themselves. They have a couple of special rules. First off, let's look at their stat line. Man-eaters are movement 6, like all ogres, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 4, strength 5, toughness 4, 3 wounds, initiative 3, 4 attacks and a leadership of 8. That puts them a little bit above the average ogre, because the average ogre... Um, has only a uh, web skill of 3 and a ballistic skill of 2. So that's 1 and 2 points respectively. They also gain a point of strength, strength 5 compared to 4 for the regular ogres. They have an extra point of initiative and they have an extra attack and an extra leadership. So these are really your elite ogres and you can see why people want to hire them. Their special rules are immune to psychology, because collectively man-eaters have seen every horror in the old world and beyond that the old world and beyond has to foist upon them. They are stubborn, they form tight-knit groups that have often traveled around the world together, they have fought everything from lustrian jungle dragons to hellish demons, Backed up by their hugely inflated opinions of their own capabilities, the man-eaters rarely run from those they see as walking food. Good to know where you stand with them. They, like other ogres, have the bull charge rule. If they charge more than 6 inches, they get an impact hit at a strength of 4. And for every ogre in the rank behind them, that strength increases by 1. So if you have a unit of two ranks, then all uh, models in the front rank do a strength five hit, and uh, that that continues on as long as you have more ranks. Man eaters are uh, dogs of war. This was a rule that you had in sixth edition. Some of the ogre units had them, and that means that you can be uh, they can be used as dogs of war in any army list. Um, that has the option to take dogs of war, so uh, Bretonia, for example, they can't. And man-eaters count as two rare choices. Man-eaters in this edition, for ogres at least, are a single rare choice. They cost 80 points apiece, and uh, their unit size is 1+. plus. 
They wear light armor and they carry an ogre club. An ogre club in 6th edition gave you a minus one save to uh, minus one modifier on any armor save. But it's only if you use the ogre club by itself, not in conjunction, conjunction with another hand weapon. Man-eaters are, uh, have the option to take heavy armor for 4 points per model, and each man-eater may replace his ogre club with either a Cathayan longsword for 6 points, a great weapon for 6 points, or a brace of handguns for 6 points, and you can mix and match within the unit. Now what do these weapons do? For that we have to turn back to the entry for the man-eaters, and the um, weapons are, well a great weapon is of course plus 2 strength always strikes last, there's not much about that. The Cathayan Longsword is a one-handed weapon that gives you plus 1 weapon skill and plus 1 initiative. It is armor piercing and uh, that's just about it. And a brace of handguns is a 24 inch range strength 4. They count as a pistol, they are armor piercing, and they have the multiple shots times 2 rule. The first time a brace of handguns is fired in any game, it may add d6 inches to its range to represent the fact that these weapons have been densely packed with black powder before the battle. A brace of handguns counts as a pair of pistols in all respects, other than those listed on its profile. So... Those are the options that you can give, and like I said, you can mix and match within the unit. In this edition, you could not give your man-eaters a command group, uh, so they could not take a banner, let alone a magic banner. And yeah, that's basically it for the man-eaters in 6th edition. In 8th edition, man-eaters have changed slightly. Their most notable differences are that they are now no longer a 80 point per model unit but a 50 point per model unit and they are also grouped in with the special units, no longer with the rare units. They can now take a captain, a musician or bellower and a standard bearer and um, their stats have remained unchanged. They still have the exact same stat line as they had in uh, the 6th edition army book. They have gained some extra rules. Um, they also have so had some rules that remain the same. These are that they uh, cause fear. That's also something all ogres do. I forgot to mention that for 6th edition. They still have the ogre charge rule. They have the rule Motley Crew, which means uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different term for the rule that they already had in 6th edition. The models in a unit of Man-Eater are armed with a variety of different weapons. And now goes on to say that uh, even though they are armed differently, you still have to take the, units away, uh, the models away from the back rank of the unit or from the side if they only have one rank. And that you cannot divide wounds amongst differently armed models. So model placement is uh, within the unit is a little bit uh, more defined in this edition. They also have a new rule which is Bin There Done That. Bin There Done That is a nice little extra rule 
When selecting for a unit of man-eaters, you must note down on the roster sheet two different special rules from the following list. The rules you choose represent traits, skills and abilities the unit has picked up during its travels, and they apply to all man-eaters in the unit. If you have more than one unit of man-eaters, they each must choose different skills. There are 8 skills to choose from. These are immune to psychology, which is something that the man-eaters had automatically in 6th edition. You can give them poisoned attacks, you can make them scouts, you can give them the sniper rule, you can give them the strider rule, they can be stubborn, also something that was standard in 6th edition. You can give them swift stride and you can give them vanguard. So this is nice, you can tweak this unit a little bit, you can maybe uh, move them up a bit if you want to do that, you can give them scouting. If you are heavy on the ogre pistols then you might want to consider sniper, always nice to have some ogre pistols into a character. Um, yeah, this is uh, for those mix and match people and if you don't know what to choose then Probably just go for the 6th edition choice, uh, Immune Psychology and Stubborn. The Ogres in uh, the Man-Eaters in this edition can have a uh, Magic Banner worth up to 50 points. They can have a Standard Bear so they can also have a Magic Banner. And any model may be equipped with the following and its notes in the army list that different models may have different weapons. You can have an additional hand weapon for 2 points per model, you can have a great weapon for 11 points per model, and you can have either a single ogre pistol for 7 points or a brace of ogre pistol for 12 points. Ogre pistols are still 24 inch strength 4, their special rules are armor piercing and quick to fire, and in the case of a brace of pistols they also have the multiple shots 2 special rule. You can also give your ogres a uh, heavy armor for a mere 4 points per model. So the ogres are, the man-eaters are not that much worse in 8th edition than they were in 6th edition. I have not played ogres much, I've never played with man-eaters and I don't even think I have ever played against them. So that means that either they were overpriced in 6th edition, uh, maybe if you have played them let me know, or maybe they are right on the nose in 6th edition and also right on the nose or maybe a little bit underpriced even in 8th edition, but because everything in 8th edition got so much more uh, hitty, uh, you got so much more bigger units, then 4 strengths for... Uh, sorry, 4 strength 5 attacks is just not going to get you enough combat results. Uh, especially considering that the other side can strike back even if you go first. So, yeah, that's uh, that might also be the case why they are a little bit cheaper in this edition. I must say I have not checked any of the other units how they compare. If it's only the man-eaters that have gone down or also the other units... Well, that's what I get for going off script. I had to look it up, of course. All of the Ogre units have gone down in points between 6th edition and 8th edition. Except for the Noblars, they have gone up by half a point. 
Well, that's it for the Ogre Man-Eaters. Now let us take a look at Golkfag Man-Eater, the ogre who bears the name Man-Eater and who is probably the most famous ogre mercenary in the entire Warhammer world. Like I said, uh, Golkfag has been around since first edition. Um, the story of Golkfag, and it, it's sometimes uh, spelled as Golfag without a middle G, and sometimes as Golkfag. They skipped around a little bit more in the uh, early editions. Um, it starts uh, like this, the story of Golkfag, and I'm reading this off of what's on the Stuff of Legends page. And they probably got it from... Uh, I think the back of the box that the Golkfang's Regiment of Mercenary Ogres came in RR8 for those of you who want to look up the catalogue number. The wars between the goblins and dwarves had just begun when Golkfag and his ogre band emerged out of the northern darkness. Golkfag was the chief of the Rudrog clan and he saw the impending war as a good opportunity to gather loot and fresh meat. The Rudrogs shambled out of their mountain homes straight into the employ of Borgden Legbreak, the chief of the goblins of the northern Misty Mountains. After a limited period of service, Golkvag had taken part in several early actions of the war. The Rudrogs proved themselves to be excellent troops, if somewhat undisciplined. One night, after an especially long and intense drinking bout, Golkvag and Bogdan, who had never liked each other anyway, fell to arguing. Within moments, the whole regiment was up and blood was flowing freely. By morning, Golkvag's regiment had fought its way out of the goblin compound and taken to the woods. Golkvag soon found employ again, however this time fighting for the dwarves against his former allies. In this capacity, he and his champion, Gradhut, led a dwarf party into the goblin stronghold and slew Bogdan in a bitter fight. Korkvag later established himself as one of the most adventurous leaders of the war and collected a great deal of gold, loot and captives before returning to the frozen north. Korkvag is armed, and I think the ogres as well, with a two-handed mace, so that would be a great weapon, I guess. I don't know how any of this stuff works in first edition, so I'm just uh, going out on a limb here. They have for their armor shields and mail coats. They have a battle cry that is listed on a on the box. The ogre language in uh, is bestial in the extreme and not easily translated. A phonetic transcription would be something like Gru Ag Ag Wa. Well, uh, for those of you who do speak ogre, I apologize for any mispronunciations there. Experts claim to recognize some elements and offer the following broken translation. Remove yourselves from your current physical location. Failure to comply with our request could result in severe physical discomfort of a kind which could seriously curtail your social life. Who would have known that Ogus was so eloquent? Recent scholarship has shed new light on this strange cry. It now appears to mean, I get so angry when I don't have a cooked breakfast. 
Deeds, the most popular story about Gorkvag concerns the time he was captured by the dwarves. He was imprisoned in the famous Black Hole of Ravensholt, along with several dozen assorted goblinoids. Crammed into his tiny space with no air and hardly enough room to breathe, the dwarves expected the occupant to die. However, when they opened the door the following morning, the dwarf jailers were aghast to see Gorkvag chewing on the remains of the last goblin. The cell was otherwise empty, although there was a good deal of gore and, gob- and blood on the floor. The dwarf leader was so awed by this feat that he ordered Gorkvag to be taken a long, long way away and released. As for their equipment, uh, each ogre carries a large round shield. This is strapped to his back in combat as to enable him to swing the mighty war mace. So the shield uh, is as you would use it, I guess, in... Later editions when you have a great weapon and a shield. A shield is for shooting and the great weapon is for combat. Uniforms. Rudrogs have long tunics down to the knee with heavy breeches and boots. Over their tunics they wear male armor and over each of their backs they have long furry cloaks. Their skin coloration is swarthy with longish black or gray hair. Their profiles in first edition... Gorkvag had a movement of 6, a web skill of 3, ballistic skill 2, strength of 3, toughness of D, the letter D that is, 3 wounds, initiative 3, 2 attacks, and he cost 34 points. And Rudrogs, the the regular ogres, they have a movement of 6, web skill of 5, ballistic skill 2, strength 3, also a toughness of D. 4 wounds, initiative 4, 3 attacks, and they cost 55 points. Now I'm not quite sure about the toughness of D, but I do believe that the letter B corresponds to what would later be toughness 3 for regular humans, for example. So that would mean that D would correspond to something like 5, I guess, uh, assuming that C is 4 and then D is 5. Well, whichever way it is, um, it is Odd to note that Gorkvag, as the leader of these ogres, has two points of weapon skill less than the regular ogres Rudrogs. He has the same ballistic skill, strength and toughness, but then he also has one less wound, one less initiative and one less attack. I have no idea why that is or if that was even common. In 2nd edition, their profiles have changed a little bit and... I think for the better, and I think any ogre would be proud of a stat line like this. Gorkvag is a chief of the Rudrogs, ogre major hero. He has a movement of 6, web skill 6, ballistic skill 5, strength 5, toughness 6, 5 wounds, initiative 6, 4 attacks, leadership 7, intelligence 6, cool 7, and willpower 9. And he costs you 241.5 points. That is basically the stat line of a giant or a dragon or something like that in later editions. Almost, not not exactly. Uh, the ogres also have a champion besides Gorkvag. Uh, Gorkvag is a hero. Garthut is the champion. He has also a movement of 6. He has a weapon skill of 4, ballistic skill 3, strength and toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 4, 2 attacks, leadership 5, intelligence 4, cool 5, and willpower 7. 
he only costs 73 and a half points. Ogre Troopers are a little bit worse even, they have movement 6, weapon skill 3, ballistic skill 2, strength 4, toughness 5, 3 attacks, initiative 3, sorry, 3 wounds, initiative 3, 2 attacks, leadership 5, intelligence 4, cool 5 and willpower 7. They only cost 44 points apiece. A standard is 220 points, 5 times that value, and a horn, a musician, would be 88 points. This is their um, iteration in the first and second edition. They had some, some lovely models. I do believe I owed some of the maybe not Gorkvag models from the first edition, um, but the regular ogres, and I did not really know what they were. I saw them on again, um, probably for a lot less money than they were actually worth uh, at that time. Um, don't really regret it though, because these ogres look so different from the later era ogres. There's even a big difference between the 5th and 6th uh, to 8th edition ogres. Uh, the 5th edition ones look a little bit more goofy, but I do think they can fit in. Ogres come from everywhere, so you can just give them a little bit of a different background if you want to mix them up. Uh, these ogres, they look more like, maybe like, like big orcs or something, so... So the miniatures themselves don't really fit in with anything from the later ranges. Now Gorkvag does return to us in the 5th edition Dogs of War book. He has a long history here, which is, or at least it's a, it's a rather long story, his entry is 2 pages, and um, I'm just going to read it out to you here because it is a little bit different from what we just heard for 1st and 2nd edition. Who could forget the ogres? Not anyone with a sense of smell, that's for sure. Worse manners than trolls, and that's saying something. But there are a few troops you'd rather there are few troops you'd rather have on your side in the heat of battle. This is a quote by Elodie Seamane. Elven Gentleman Adventurer. Gorkvag is the biggest, ugliest and quite definitely the loudest ogre to shamble out of the northern wastes in living memory. He soon found himself leading a bunch of almost equally brutal ogre warriors. He quickly developed a taste for man-flesh and joined forces with an orc warlord called Gnashrak Badtooth. Nashrak was busy fighting against the dwarves of Karakadrin high up in the World's Edge Mountains. Gorkvag wasn't sure he liked the taste of dwarf, but was more than happy to find out. Nashrak thought the ogres would prove just the kind of troops he needed to sort out the dwarves. However, he soon grew tired of the ogres' appetite for goblins, booze and raucous singing. After one particularly loud drinking session, Gorkvag and Gnashrak got into a huge fight. Soon all the ogres and orcs were scrapping, Gorkvag tore off the orc's arm and used it to bash his way out of the encampment before leading his lads to safety. Gnashrak was completely enraged. Gorkvag promptly offered his services to the dwarf leader Angram Ironfist. He showed Gnashrak's arm to Angram as proof of his sincerity 
In the face of such a convincing offer, Iron Fist was hardly able to refuse. Gorkfeit led his ogres and a party of dwarves along a secret track to the orcs encampment in Broken Leg Gully, so called because of the impossibly steep and treacherous sides. The, ogres, the orcs were trapped and horribly slaughtered. Rashwak was captured and subsequently bound in chains and delivered to Angrim Iron Fist. Pausing only to loot the Dwarf Lord's treasury during the ensuing celebrations, Gokvag headed west into the Empire. There he took employment in the ranks of the Imperial Army and it was here that he discovered halflings were by far his favorite food. Shortly afterwards he turned up in the lands of Tilly in the employ of one Lorenzo Lupo. Lorenzo found the ogres to be excellent troops but a considerable nuisance. The citizens of Lucini were forever complaining about of being beaten, robbed or bullied by the rowdy ogres. One night Golkvag decided to take rather more than his fair share of wine directly from Lorenzo's warehouses. When the ogres fell into a drunken stupor, Lorenzo sent a company of pikemen to arrest them and throw them into the dungeons. Fortunately for Lorenzo, an opportunity to be rid of the ogres altogether arrived in the form of a messenger from one of the border princes. The messenger was hiring mercenaries on behalf of his master. Lorenzo cheerfully fitted him up with the ogres, took his fee and released Golkvag and his crew from captivity. Golkvag was understandably annoyed, but faced with a new offer of employment, a complimentary baggage train of food, and a firing squad of Tillian crossbowmen, the ogre decided to let matters lie for the moment. Gokvag's stay in the Border Princess proved a successful and profitable one. The ogres grew fat and wealthy. They were kept very busy by one side or another and were given every chance to indulge their appetite for fresh meat. Gokvag's only regret was the scarcity of halflings thereabouts. When he heard that trouble was brewing between the orcs and dwarfs, he headed northwards once more. He fell in with a bunch of orcs and goblins and he was soon feasting upon dwarf again. It was after foray against the dwarfs that Golkvag was ambushed by none other than Angram Ironfist, his former employer. The canny dwarf lord led the orc army into a trap using a convoy as bait. The convoy consisted entirely of wagons full of cheap ale, which the greenskins duly captured and drained. Gokvag and the ogres courageously drank themselves into oblivion along with the rest. When they awoke, the ogres found themselves in the dungeons deep below Karak Kadrin, along with the remnants of the orc army. The dwarves no doubt expected Gorkvag to die in his cramped and crowded dungeon and probably thought this would be easier and safer than trying to kill the ogre in some other fashion. When the dwarves finally opened the dungeon some months later, they were started to fight Gorkvag till alive. He had eaten every other inmate of the dungeon, including the rest of the ogres apart from Scaf. Out of respect for his oldest drinking buddy, Gorkvag had only so far eaten one of Scaf's legs. A great pile of orc, goblin and ogre bones lay in one corner. When he heard of this, Angram Ironfist was so impressed he ordered Gorkvag to be taken a long way away and released. Gorkvag soon gathered together some more of his old lads and other keen young ogres flocked to join him. 
Scarf decided to stick with Golkvac despite everything and gratefully accepted the position of standard bearer as this gave him something to lean on. Before the summer was out, Golkvac headed south over the Grey Mountains in the company of with an orc raiding party. It was there that he fought his first battles against Bretonians and where he would crack a few tinnies and feast upon man flesh once more. From that day to this, Golkvac has never looked back. His reputation has, if anything, grown and grown, so has his girth. But he still has a few scores to settle, not at least with the dwarves of Kadrin and with the treacherous Lorenzo Lupo. However, ogres are straightforward folk and such things take second place to a good fight and a full belly. You see that the lore of the first and second edition has been expanded upon. It has been retconned a little bit, but it has still remained intact. You can still see the core that was there that was laid out all the way back in first edition in the uh, mid-80s. Golkvac and his ogres, the regiment, consists of Captain Golkvac. They have a motto, all the regiments of renown in this edition had a motto. You've hired the rest, now try the best. I'm liking this ogre more and more. The battle cry is still a grog ag ag wag, and this is a reasonable rendering of the ogreish a language little understood by other races and hard going for even for ogres. The meaning is obscure. It might mean something like feed me, feed me now. Uh, the meaning has changed, I think, with every interpretation so far. The appearance of the unit, ugly, ferocious and hungry, that's really saying it all, isn't it? Korkvac's ogres wear dirty patched clothing made of skins, leather and such items as they have pillaged or crudely stitched together from old cloaks, blankets, tents, canvas, awnings, etc. Their appearance is obviously raggedly rather than crude. Their armor is a hodgepodge of pieces made for other races and strapped over strategically vulnerable bits of the ogre's body. Ogres have a rough, gnarled and warty skin, and being veterans of countless battles, Golkvac's lads are covered in scars. For hire, any Warhammer army can hire Golkvac's ogres. They, uh, the points that you pay for them, Golkvac and four ogres, including Calf, the Standard Bearer, and a Hornblower, cost a total of 500 points. This is the minimum unit you can hire. The size of the regiment may be increased at a cost of 44 points per ogre. The stat line for the regular ogres is the same as an ogre is in, for example, the Empire Army book. They have movement 6, weapon skill 3, ballistic skill 2. Strength 4, Toughness 5, Wounds 3, Initiative 3, 2 Attacks and Leadership 7. Scarf, the standard bearer, has the exact same stat line except that he has one additional attack, basically making him into a champion. Gorkvac is a little bit better and his profile has not changed all that much from what it was in 2nd edition. He has Movement 6, Weapon Skill 6, Ballistic Skill 2, Strength 5, Toughness 6, Wounds 6. Initiative 5, 5 attacks and a leadership of 9. For weapons and armor, Golfag carries a massive cleaver in one fist, which is for splitting ads, and an even larger spiked club in the other one for crumping ads. 
He wears a heavily armored coat made of scavenged bits from battlefields across the old world, and Golkvag ogres carry similar weapons to their leader and wear an armored coat in the same style. Scav carries only one weapon, but bashes his foes on the head with his banner, so he counts as having two. Uh, basically, all the ogres in this edition have the additional hand weapon, at least all the mercenary ogres. They have a 5 plus armor save and they cause fear. That's it for the ogres in 5th edition, Golkvag's ogres. Golkvag makes a return in 6th edition. The Dogs of War never got an official army book in 6th edition, but they have been, the units have been released in the um, different White Dwarfs and also in the Warhammer Chronicles. I have here in front of me the 2002 annual, and this contains the entry for Golkvax Ogres. There is no backstory here, it's just simply for hire, they can be hired as a special unit in a Dogs of War army, or as a rare unit in other Warhammer armies except Bretonia. Golkvax and three of his Ogres, including Scarf the Standard Bearer and a Horn Blower, cost a total of 285 points. This is the minimum unit you can hire, so the size of the regiment has dropped from four, 5 minimum to 4 minimum. The regiment may be increased at a cost of 45 points per additional ogre. Ogres are what they are in 6th edition, I believe they are the same as the ogre bulls in the ogre kingdom. Movement 6, web skill 3, ballistic skill 2, strength and toughness 4, 3 wounds initiative 2, 3 attacks and a leadership of 7. Just as in 5th edition, Scarf the standard bearer has an additional attack, basically making him a champion. And Golkvag is the hero level ogre, his stats have been nerfed a little bit but everything had in 6th edition. He is now movement 6, web skill 5, ballistic skill 2. Strength and Toughness 5, 4 Wounds Initiative 3, still 5 attacks and a leadership of 8. The Ogres have 2 hand weapons and they carry heavy armor and their special rule is that they instill fear in their enemies. Still I think a rather fun unit to take. Now let's take a look at the final iteration for Golkvag. He was not included in the Ogre book as a special character in 6th edition but he is in 8th edition. The lore for Golkvag in 8th edition has remained almost exactly the same as it was in 5th edition, though not word for word it is a little less extensive than it was in 5th edition. You still have the same things and the same jokes in there. Uh, his favorite food is still halflings, uh, Bretonians are still called tint food, stuff like that. Golkvag is a special character, he is a hero level special character, and he costs 260 points. In this edition, Golkvag is not automatically accompanied by a regiment of man-eaters. However, he has a special rule that says that man-eaters, um, if Golkvag is taken, one unit of man-eaters may be upgraded to Golkvag man-eaters at no additional cost in points. And this means that, um, let's see, where did I see it here? Uh, that means that they have the Stubborn and Vanguard special rules from Bindar Dondad, so other Maneater units cannot select those. 
And in addition, they are treated as trusty allies in an allegiance by units on all uh, all units on their side, and they count all units on their side as trusted allies in return. If you have Gokfag man eaters, then Gokfag must set up within the unit, and he may not leave it. So there's a a bit of a different rule there. Uh, this is mostly to do with the allies rules. Gokfag has a stat line that has remained, I think, the same from what it was in 6th uh, edition, except that he's got a little bit higher ballistic skill. He is now movement 6, web skill 5, ballistic skill 4, strength and toughness still 5, 4 wounds initiative 4, 5 attacks and a leadership of 8. He is monstrous infantry, a special character. Kolkvag is equipped with two hand weapons and an ogre pistol, and he wears light armor. Kolkvag has some special rules. Of course, the standard ones, fear and ogre charge. He has the rule Kolkvag's man-eaters, which I just read out. And he also has the rule easy come, easy go. Over the years, Kolkvag has owned, owed and lost countless magic items. At the start of a battle, before deployment, roll 2d6 and multiply the score by 10. You may equip Korkvag with magic items with a total points value that is equal to or less than the result. The normal restrictions on choosing magic items apply, so you can't take the same item twice in the army or equip Korkvag with two items of the same type, etc. If Korkvag chooses a magic weapon, he cannot benefit from the additional hand weapon rule. And the item chosen does not count against Gokfag points value or the total points value of the army. This is a, a nice fun little rule. There's always, uh, of course, a risk that you roll double one or a one, or a one and a two, where your regular hero could take 50 points of magic items, but the odds are in your favor here. Uh, 70 points of magic items is the average, and it can go as high as 120. That is it to my knowledge for Gorkvag and his and others man-eaters. There are two short stories that I know have been written about Gorkvag. These are um, the Battle of Whitestone and, they, and the other one is Gorkvag Revenge. They are both written by Jonathan D. Hill and... I cannot tell you if these are good stories. I have not read them myself. I do not have them in my collection. I believe they only exist as e-shorts. And I am a bit of a long beard. I like my books to be made of paper and not of pixels. So I have up to this point not bought any of the uh, Games Workshop digital editions. I do try to collect all those books in uh, in, in paper format. In... Um, um, actual physical copies but so far I don't think these stories have appeared in any of the books it might be that they will appear in a future Warhammer Chronicles compilation they are still putting those out they have just announced that the uh, what was it called again not the Knights of the Empire but uh, something of the Empire Empire of War I believe a new Empire compilation with several of the novels and short stories is going to come out very soon. I have already pre-ordered that one. Um, but I don't think that there are any stories about Golkvag or Ogres in general in there. 
I don't really know of any books that focus on ogres as their main point except for the army books. Uh, they were of course rather late in coming and maybe they are just not as interesting as say dwarves or elves uh, which have a lot of books. Uh, the Empire of course and, and several human individuals they might still be more relatable than ogres. Um, to me I have not tried halfling but I do enjoy a good meal and I do enjoy a good drink as well. Uh, heroically drinking yourself into a stupor is something that I have done in my younger years I don't do that as often now uh, but well I don't know if it's very heroic uh, once in a while it is very nice to behave like an ogre just uh, there's a time and place for everything. I will leave you with this. Thank you very much for listening. You can, if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can always contact us. Uh, the contact details will follow at the end of the episode. And something which I always forget to mention is that we are also on Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash wargamesorchard, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm saying this by heart, but if you just type in wargamesorchard Patreon, you can find us. There are some nice bonus episodes there. Nathan is taking a trip through the different 4th edition army books, and he is grating them by different topics, like how well their units are, how the artwork is, um, how the hobby section is, all stuff like that. Uh, if you are interested in that, I can highly recommend those episodes. They are great fun to, to listen to. And we also have a lot of other and some older episodes there as well. For example, if you want to listen to Nathan rolling up a Chaos Champion, uh, that's also part of the, uh, of the episodes. Um, and uh, while well, we did the 100th episode with uh, uh, Dark Omen... We also discussed Shadow of the Horned Rat, and that is also on our Patreon. Now, Patreon is non-tiered, so you can pay as little or as much as you want and have access to all the content. So why you haven't done it already, I really don't know. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you next time, and in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram or email us at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard. Know ye now, the time of mortals has come to an end.